welcome to Ask the Expert. We are, um, the Sugar Science uh, is providing Ask the Expert, uh, which is a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and re uh, related interdisciplinary research. We are recording this event. We're going to post it on the Sugar Science YouTube channel shortly after presentation. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. So today we have as our guest, uh, Dr. Anna Conesa. She is uh, a research professor at the Institute for Integrative uh, Systems Biology of the Spanish National Research Council and courtesy professor in the Microbiology and Cell Science Department at University of Florida. She is a computational biologist interested in the development of algorithms and software tools to study the functional aspects of gene expression and combine multi-omics data sets to understand the dynamics com uh, dynamic complex molecular system. She has published 137 papers uh, that have received over 27,000 citations. Wow, that's a big number. And her tools like Blast2Go, Paintomics, Quanti are used by thousands of biologists worldwide. And so in relation to uh, type one diabetes, she's developed a multi-omics mechanism model of disease progressing she's gonna present today. And I also would like to just highlight the fact that she just uh, put out a paper called Multi-Omics Modeling of T1D Links Lipid Impairment with T1D Onset. We had a very interesting um, conversation at the beginning of the week with Karsten Bouchard and his postdoctoral student, um, Christina Pedersen, regarding this very subject, that there's, uh, there, there's a real um, interest, or they have a real interest in lipid impairment in T1D onset, and they're up in um, Copenhagen. So uh, that paper, in case anyone's interested, is, in is titled, you know, multi, uh, basically multi-omics modeling of T1D links lipid impairment uh, with T1D onset, and it's an integrative analysis of teleomics data. Uh, that revealed lipid metabolism abnormalities, increased uh, intracellular ROS, and incited and heightened inflammation prior to autoimmunity uh, for type 1 diabetes. So welcome, um, Dr. Kanesa, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to share. Well, Monica, thank you very much for the, for the extensive introduction and overall for the invitation to present this, uh, this piece of work here. Well, actually, well, I am not an expert in Taiwan D. Um, I am a, a person who analyzes data and is interested in, in understanding biology. So that's, uh, um, that's our, my weapons to, to, to jump into the field of, uh, of type 1 uh, diabetes. So I will present this work on uh, the multiomics uh, uh, modeling as it was uh, introduced. And yes, uh, we use here uh, data from the Teddy study and you probably know uh, about this study because it's, it's very famous. It's, uh, the data has been around for already some time, but basically the idea here was that uh, although we know some genetic determinants of, uh, of the disease of type 1D, uh, there are also uh, environmental factors that uh, are triggers of the uh, disease progression that leads eventually to autoimmunity. But we had the feeling, or there was the feeling that, you know, this progression is a kind of a, like a, a black box. And there are many questions still to be answered, like uh, which are the molecular events that are associated to progress to isolate uh, auto, uh, immunity and type 1D. Uh, can we predict that at come uh, time ahead of seroconvasion, so that there is time to do things, to intervene. Uh, and uh, of course, if uh, there is a relationship in which is the relationship between the genetics and these environmental uh, events. 
And in this work, we focus on the first two questions um, uh, and, and try to, to create a, a, a model that will describe these molecular events. Uh, you know that uh, Teddy collected a very beautiful collection of uh, multiomics data uh, in which uh, uh, individuals that were at risk of uh, developing the disease because of their genotype uh, were recruited and they were sampled uh, in time from birth of an early from birth uh, to up to 15 years of age. And, uh, Samples were taken at regular intervals, like six of uh, three, six months, depending on the type of sample. And basically, we had in this data set, we have uh, data from uh, dietary markers and uh, uh, metabolomics. In this case, we use blood uh, metabolomics data um, uh, with a matching uh, case control structure. I will mention this later as well. And there was also transcriptomics data, blood transcriptomics data uh, taken at the same type of uh, uh, intervals. Finally, the collection of the number of individuals was uh, uh, around uh, 400 cases with the respective controls. Uh, and 114 of them uh, actually progress all the way towards uh, type 1D. They were not diagnosed uh, with the type 1 diabetes. So uh, to, to analyze this data, we put together an analysis pipeline that tried to integrate uh, the different type of uh, molecular uh, measurements, uh, taking into account this uh, longitudinal nature of the data and trying to say something about the mechanistics of the disease uh, progression. And as you mentioned, this uh, uh, paper was published uh, early this year. And this is like an overview of how we uh, put together this uh, analysis pipeline that actually we hope that, uh, I mean, it's a generic pipeline and we hope that this can be used in other similar uh, scenarios of uh, analyzing disease progression. But basically, um, we have a first part in which we really have to uh, do some uh, cleaning and uh, harmonization of data. All these pre-processing steps are really time consuming. Then we have all this statistical modeling in which we are trying to uh, predict outcome later in time and to select which are these molecular components that, that are important. And finally, uh, this information these molecular elements that are predictive of the progression of the disease, we try to interpret them in terms of the uh, biology they, rep they represent. So I really have to talk about data preparation because it's so important. I think that uh, in this study, it was very important, the, 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 the nature of the design, Teddy design, the case control uh, study in which each individual has its uh, uh, a disease of, uh, uh, of each case has a matching control by age uh, and gender and, and some other characteristics. And this was very important to, uh, to control for confounding effects that are associated to these uh, uh, other variables. So that was the design that we, we, we found, but we also had to do first an, an adjustment of the data to recalculate the, the observations uh, to be related to the uh, um, to the actual onset of uh, islet autoimmunity of type one D, uh, and in this way, recalculating or rescaling this this time component, we were able to put together individuals from uh, different ages that were somehow already controlled because of their matching uh, matching controls. Okay. Still, you have a lot of missing data. So uh, for our modeling, we need to. Uh, 
to uh, do some uh, imputation of uh, missing data. We did that in a moderate way. So we had some kind of balance between removal of individuals that did not have complete observations and imputing a small, small amount of, of the missing data so that we could have, we could recover a good number of individuals for our modeling. And then we had this, uh, what we called, uh, uh, we see normalization. So basically, uh, taking into advantage this case control structure, uh, we actually, each variable, each value that we use in the modeling, in the statistical modeling, uh, was uh, the, 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 the difference between the value uh, in the case and uh, what was observed in the control, in the match control. So for this uh, approach, we use a general uh, uh, statistical framework, which is called uh, MPLSDA. Uh, MPLS stands for uh, partialist square and means that is uh, multidimensional and discriminant analysis is uh, an idea that we have to predict uh, outcome. But basically uh, we use this approach because uh, it was very nice uh, for our type of data. So we have individuals, we have the omics features, so all the uh, measured genes and metabolites and, and dietary biomarkers. So these are our features. And then we have a time component. So we created a, a box data structure, which is called the tensor, in which its value is the normalized value of the feature uh, in patient uh, J at time K. So that's how we represent our data. And then we have information about the outcome. So our individuals are labeled for being cases or controls, but you can also label by other characteristics, for example, which was the first uh, appearing out antibody of uh, other type of uh, clinical information. I will not go into the explanation of the MPLS modeling, but basically what we do is to try to maximize the covariance in this data structure uh, in a way that is able to explain and differentiate uh, the cases from the controls. So basically what we do here with this global uh, statistical framework is that the first we fit uh, MPLSDA model for each of the omics modality. Uh, the expression, the expression, the metabolite data and the diet data. And the, the reason why we do this uh, separately at the beginning is because the dimension of the data set is very different from each omic modality. So because we wanted to have an interpretation afterwards, we thought it was good to make sure that we will extract information from both genes, metabolites and dietary markers. Uh, we have an elaborated way of uh, uh, variable selection. Basically, what we do is identify these features that are predictive of outcomes. So to select from, from the huge number, we, you have to understand that we are starting with something like 20,000 uh, gene expression values here. So we really need to, to reduce this uh, dimensionality. And once we have our uh, variable selection, uh, we put again everything in an NPLS DA model with the, with the goal uh, of now incorporating the expression metabolomics and dietary data together to test the accuracy of the model uh, for, for the prediction. So extract variables and combine them to calculate the accuracy of the model. So this is what we got in terms of uh, statistical modeling. So we got a model in which we could differentiate case and controls. Uh, this is a kind of plot that represents the, the analysis of the variability, the projected space. So you can say that the model capture 
a component of variance that is different from cases and controls. But what is probably more interesting here, of also very surprising to us, is that uh, in the same space of variability that makes this difference, we can also uh, uh, visualize how the different time points are behaving. And uh, those time points uh, that were 12 and nine months before seroconversion, because they have high values in this first component, are, uh, are indicating that they are very important for the separation that we have here. So actually, this, is, this means that already at very early time points, we can start uh, being able to, to predict uh, the outcome that will happen later. Yeah, that's very powerful. And this is something that they've been looking for uh, for some time is to be able to establish the window, right? So that's, this is amazing work. Yeah, yeah. we didn't, we didn't uh, look uh, wider that uh, 12 months, uh, basically because of limitation in the amount of data. If we would expand, then it was more difficult to include more individuals, right? Yeah. Um, but I think I'm really, really interested because that could be very possible. Yeah. I mean, just basically, then we also did, uh, you know, the proper statistical validation and the reviewers insisted a lot on that. So we, we did a, a different numbers of, uh, of uh, cross-validation and independent set validation to, 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 to verify that this model was having a good prediction capacity. Um, the, the, the rate of prediction, if, if one is maximum, was around 70-80% uh, 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 prediction value, which is, I would say, is, is pretty good for, for this type of, of you know, disease in which uh, so many different uh, individuals and ages are involved. Yeah. So uh, finally, we, uh, we extracted something like 1,000 features that were something like 800 genes, 200 metabolites, and some of the dietary components that all together have this ability to predict. And of course, we want to interpre interpret what that means, right? Um, so then we, you look at in more detail to, to these uh, features, and then you ask uh, which are the pathways they are involved, which are you know, the type of metabolites they represent. And this is a representation of this like functional interpretation. So in panel A, you have some indication of which are uh, significant pathways that are represented by this uh, predicted feature. And this is represented uh, like each box represents a time point. And when you have a red color, it means that it's more, this, the genes in these pathways are more activated in cases than in controls. And the blue represents the other, the other side of the spectrum. So you can see here already that we have uh, this, this predictive signature is very much represented by genes in, involved in energy pathways, uh, like colysis, TCA. We have also rose detoxification seems to be activated. And then some other things interesting, like uh, uh, RNA metabolism pathways were kind of like they were like a down uh, regulated somehow. Okay. In terms of, of the metabolites, we basically see like uh, these uh, fatty acids and, and, and some other uh, uh, lipids and some other compounds like phosphatidylamines and, and, and uh, the lipophosphatidylamines to being activated and then some others like uh, stingomyelins and ceramides. Uh, these all were like at lower at lower uh, values in in the in the type one D patients of the 
the patients that progress towards uh, islet autoimmunity. For the signaling pathways, the, the picture was more complex uh, and we had like two waves of, of uh, signaling events. Ones were signaling events that happened around mostly uh, like nine months before, before surgery conversion and then some other uh, signaling activities were uh, increased towards uh, the end of, 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 the, of this uh, progression time. And then we tried, as I mentioned before, put all these features together and, and create a mechanistic model. And this was really, really a very a strong effort that required the incorporation of, of the uh, omics data that we, that we obtained for the statistical analysis, but also a lot of uh, reading and talking to the, to, the, uh, to the people who really know about the disease. And we came up with this kind of model. Here we represent different pathways. And what you see in these boxes represent genes or metabolites of, of, of dietary components. At the beginning of the box, we have the beginning of the time, so like the minus the, the 12 months before seroconversion, and towards the end of, of the box, we are uh, being closer to, uh, uh, to the uh, seroconversion time. And again, uh, red means higher activity in cases and blue means uh, lower activity in cases. So the way in which we interpret this is that we start here and, in which we see that we have a low expression of uh, silomicron membrane components here uh, that is correlated with secondary metabolites like uh, adipate, uh, negatively correlated. Uh, and also with markers of uh, impaired beta oxidation. And this is also consistent with low uh, vitamin levels that we, we, we measure in, in these individuals. So but also can I ask a quick question? So the chylomicron is deficient, uh, has lipid impairment, you know, from the get-go. So basically this is, you're in the androcyte now, right? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we see this, uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we see that these components, these uh, elements of the membranes are clearly uh, uh, downregulated mm -hmm. in cases. Yeah. And that's how we start our proposed model. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another uh, element that this was very clear was the drone regulation of PPR uh, alpha, which is a transcription factor that is involved uh, in the control of uh, glycogen synthesis and, and glycolysis. So this is a very important transcription factor. But uh, here, what we, what we uh, concluded from this analysis is that we have, especially at the beginning, an exacerbated uh, glycolysis activity that will also go into the TCA cycle. And we, we found at the TCA cycle that most of the genes, but also uh, of the metabolites that we were measuring, were activated um, so that we have higher uh, activity. Uh, we believe that this is somehow uh, of this, we know that this uh, may be uh, linked to the uh, production of uh, reactive uh, oxygen species. And actually what we see is also an increase in ROS degrading enzymes. That is an, an indication that we have this uh, oxidative uh, status uh, activated. Uh, and finally, we also found the activation of uh, prostaglandins and uh, uh, lipoxygenases that uh, will be leading, uh, that will lead uh, to inflammation. So this is our proposed model for linking this impaired uh, lipidic situation with, you know, uh, the, the inflammatory response. And this is, this is something that we mentioned in blood. We don't have to, to forget that. 
but we uh, so we are you know we are in the peripheral area but we we try somehow also from the signals that we got uh, from from this blood analysis to try to guess to infer what could be actually uh, happen in terms of uh, at the um, at the uh, isolates. So we proposed again. This is uh, what we proposed from the data that we measured. Uh, this uh, this other uh, model of uh, how you know we could uh, lead this to the autoimmunity. And here the idea is that the higher rose levels of the uh, isolate autoimmunity uh, developing individuals may induce uh, early uh, regulation of TNF-alpha, which is, has been described, leading to the increased activate of the antigen presenting cells and the activation of uh, T-helper cells through the FOXO1 pathway. Uh, the low levels of uh, TGF-beta uh, and interleukin-10 may indicate that uh, there is an inability to control uh, T-cell uh, proliferation. And we also found uh, these high levels of uh, uh, diverse metalloproteases like uh, 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 MMP9, which is uh, suggesting somehow an environment of uh, that will be favorable and favorable to cell migration. This may result into inflammation, cytokines, and migration of uh, immune uh, cells like uh, TD8 and uh, natural killer cells to the pancreatic islet, uh, which may provoke apoptosis activation through a number of uh, pathways that we also found here, like uh, caspase, uh, porphyrin, and grams and B, we found really highly activated in this patient. So this is somehow how we tried to put all the information together and suggest that some some pathways that will link, you know, this ROS response to to things that could be leading to autoimmunity. And this this is our work. Um, our conclusions is that uh, we we developed this statistical framework for uh, to model disease progression uh, using multiomics data and. Uh, as I mentioned before, this result suggests somehow metabolic link between these lipidic impairments and the onset of type 1D. And as you mentioned, I think that this, this observation that at least two, 12 months before seroconversion, we could still start seeing these signatures. I think this is very exciting for, for potential therapeutic uh, intervention. And with that, I want to uh, go into the acknowledgement. Um, well, this work is uh, this is work of uh, Leandro Balfano. He was a, a postdoc in my lab. Uh, other students, Tatiana and Ricardo, contributed a lot to this study. But uh, of course, other members of the University of Florida helped me a lot on that in the interpretation and the discussions were very uh, exciting with uh, Michael uh, Des and Mark and also Patrick Oncano, who, who were there uh, asking with me uh, what all this uh, uh, means. And of course, uh, we got the funding from the Helmsley Foundation through the University of South, uh, South Florida for this study. And this with is... that, I'm happy to take questions. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. We have a couple of um, folks in the audience. I'd love for them to either send something through in the chat or <clears throat> they can, you know, un we can unmute them, whatever they prefer. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, sort of what's next for you? What is your next um, step here in this, uh, this sort of realm? 
uh, I actually uh, like left the University of Florida, and uh, I know that Leandro is now working uh, with uh, with this and 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 marking new type of uh, uh, data analysis venues. So what I would I think what that would be very interesting, and we we were discussing this a lot uh, with Leandro, was to to be able to somehow to see this type of signatures in, in, in other studies, in other data sets. Another very interesting aspect will be to see how these observations of early identification of these uh, uh, lipidic impairment signatures you know, could be uh, more uh, validated in the clinic. So I think that will be the two uh, you know, ways to continue this study. Yeah. And will you be involved in the continuation or is Leandro going to take the... Um... I, I mean, at this point, it's Leandro uh, mainly working on the continuation with that uh, and that. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm still collaborating with Leandro too, so I may be involved somehow. Yeah. Fantastic. And it is kind of interesting. Earlier this week, we spoke to Christina Pedersen and um, Carson Bouchard. You know, he had... Um, published uh, three years ago, a paper where they gave a, a patient who had just um, been diagnosed with type one diabetes at 19, the phenofibrate. And, um, you know, they are directly looking at this whole sphingolipid dif uh, deficiency and, and thinking about what that might mean. So it's really interesting that, you know, both of you kind of talking about lipids this in this one week, um, I do think that uh, the way you've gone about sort of tracking it down and capturing it is really very powerful. And I think it'll be really interesting to watch what ha what comes out of University of Florida with Leandro Balzano in terms of, you know, the next steps. Um, there's a lot of data that remains to be sort of mined and gone back over, right? I mean, you can go, you can go back into these data sets and, and look at them through these different lenses that you're you know, you've discussed yeah. today. Yeah, I think what was very important in this study is that the combination of the different layers was critical to, to gain understanding. Um, I think that really when you put the gene expression and the metabolomic data together is where you can start creating like a story because you can see the changes, the metabolic changes, but also have some kind of hypothesis of who could be involved in these changes, of who could these changes might be, you know, related to each other. Uh, when you only see one of the elements of the picture, it's like you, you, you have a partial view. I know that in the Teddy data, there is also, uh, now I think, proteomics data available and maybe some other type of uh, measurements. That's, that could also be very interesting to put uh, together. I think also it's very exciting now. Um, people are starting to look into single cell analysis um, because, you know, these are uh, uh, blood measurements, this is, uh, you know, and, 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 and I mean, not only blood, but also, you know, the, the, the pancreatic environment itself. Uh, there, there is not just, you know, one gene that is the same in every single cell, but every single cell is doing a different job. Yeah. And it's the communication between them that actually creates the phenotype. Yeah, it will be really interesting to, as the, like you say, the puzzle pieces come together and the different <laughs> layers of analyses are combined. And I liked how, that you said that the collaborative team effort is so much more powerful because people come to these data and the analysis with their, their lenses of, um, you know, their of the research they're involved in or their expertise. 
and they can all sort of see it, you know, in a, in a fresh way. And then in conversation, they can kind of put that all together. So, and that's really apparent in the, in the way you did this work. So it's really, I think it's laudable. And I think that's, it really is the, the new way forward. Right. So yeah. we were actually putting together the D challenge. We have that uh, registration ends a week from today. It's gaining some registrants and it's really all about sort of using this consensum that's, uh, that Neil um, McKenna has put together out of the Signaling Pathways Project. Uh, it, you know, it's inviting the community to mine these data through their lenses of expertise and, and just sort of come up with a new hypothesis. I mean, it's gonna be, you know, IP protected. No one's gonna, you know, until you publish it, it's not gonna be um, released, but, you know, we'll have experts that will judge it and they're gonna be, you know, they'll be very proprietary about it. But I think that um, it, it's, it's a chance for sort of maybe those that are younger maybe, or, or even those that are experts in this sort of uh, bioinformatics realm and silico uh, realm and model makers to, to dive into the data and, and try it. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, well, um, anyone, anybody at all, no? Okay. All right, it was great to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for meeting with us. Um, and I hope you have a, rest, you. a wonderful rest of your evening and I'll be in touch soon. Yeah, thank you. Please uh, get in touch. That I will. Be great. I will. Thank again. you so much. Have a great okay. rest of the evening. Bye-bye.